Hi, everyone. Welcome to Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be here with you guys for another show. Now, before I get into today's topic, I want to touch on one big news story that took place at the end of last week because it's kind of a follow-up on a story I did a few weeks back on North Korea. As we all know, Donald Trump met with the leader of North Korea a few weeks back, Kim Jong-un, and they discussed a lot of different things, a lot of potential deals and lifting of sanctions, the nuclearization of the peninsula, or I should say the denuclearization of the peninsula. But one of the smaller, lesser reported stories was that North Korea agreed to return the remains of U.S. troops. These are U.S. soldiers who died during the Korean War about 60 to 65 years ago. And while this was very underreported, and you may think on the surface it seems like a pretty small deal, but this is actually a really important symbolic gesture. I don't know if it'll have any impact on the future relationship between these two countries or North Korea and the rest of the world, but the return of these remains is a really important deal, a really great moment for a lot of families who had family members die in the Korean War. And while this may seem like a fairly small ordeal in comparison to, say, the nuclear weapons that North Korea possesses, this is a real humanitarian symbol from North Korea that, I, again, I don't know if this will lead to anything down the road, but it does help provide closure to a lot of veterans, to a lot of family members of veterans uh, who were not able to return home. And so I'm going to do something that I don't really do ever on the show or really very often in person either, but that's give props to Donald Trump and to the North Koreans for going ahead and completing this gesture. And it's nice to see that at least part of that commitment that was made by one of the parties is being fulfilled. I think this is a really good thing, no matter who you are, if you're a Trump supporter or a Trump hater, you really can't get upset by this particular action because it means so much to so many people. You have to really feel for these families who are now able to get the closure that they have been missing for so, so long. And so this is an encouraging step. As I mentioned, I, I don't know that this actually means a whole lot going forward with the relationship. And in fact, the North Koreans could argue that they have now begun to fulfill their part of the bargain and could then push for the United States to make other concessions. So I, I don't know how that's going to play out. But at the same time, I think this is a very encouraging gesture, and I'm glad to see that something from this meeting back in June has actually come to fruition. I, I was very skeptical of it, but this is a, a meaningful step that I think can help contribute to some growing trust going forward. I, I don't know that it'll lead to peace and stability or denuclearization or anything like that. But for the families whose family members have been returned, you know, you really can't put a price tag on that. And so I, I will give props here to both the North Koreans for fulfilling this small part of their bargain, but also to Donald Trump for pushing for this in his meeting as well. He could have very easily skipped over this and focused on the, the denuclearization issue or sanctions or something else along those lines. But he made sure this was part of it. And whether this was his idea or more likely someone in his administration's idea, I, I think this is something that needs to be commended. But let's go ahead and move into today's topic. Now, the issue I have today comes from a news story that I found last week. I believe it was Friday. I saw the UN has basically come out and said that they are running out of cash. Uh, the UN is starting to go bankrupt. They are losing money, and they've basically put in an appeal to their members. Now, they're arguing here that this financial trouble that they're facing is mostly due to late payments by member states. In other words, a lot of states have pledged money but are delayed, I should say, in, in making those payments. And so the cash flow that the organization has has been very, very low, you know, through this first half of the year. And the organization has been forced to kind of look at ways to reduce costs in, um, in manners that they, they hope won't affect their overall mission as to what their purpose is. 
Now, this actually raised a lot of questions for me that I think are really important to dive into. In particular, the idea of like, what is the purpose of these organizations? Why why does the UN exist? Why do other organizations that are similar, like the EU or NATO or some of these other international institutions exist? And what's their purpose? And are they actually fulfilling them? And so with this, I wanted to do kind of an episode that's a little bit more theory-based, a little bit more general in nature. But uh, we're going to be still looking at it in context of some of these real-life institutions and what's going on with them right now. So the first question we have to ask is, why do these institutions exist? And I think this is a really good question. It's actually a much tougher one to answer than you might think. You know, the obvious answer here is all cooperation. But why do countries need to cooperate in the first place? What's the purpose there? And this gets to a political science concept that's called international anarchy. Now, you're probably familiar with the term anarchy, and it usually is in reference to this idea of kind of a lawless society, you know, the anarchists who fight to take down governments. But on kind of an international stage, what this means is that there is no global governing body. There is no institution or government that rules all the other countries and keeps them in place. So if one country steps out of line and does something, you know, attacks another country, there was, there's no sort of enforcement mechanism in place to keep that safe. And so this has created a lot of variation in the way that countries respond to acts of aggression by others. But first, a little history. So if we're going to back up a little ways, all the way back to World War I, the U.S. president at the time was a man by the name of Woodrow Wilson. And he was really big on this idea of collective security. Now, if you've been listening to these episodes, you know I touched on what collective security is and what that means a few episodes ago. But essentially what this is, the idea that if one country gets attacked, that is a threat not only to that country, but it's a threat to global peace and global security as well. And other countries should be concerned and therefore should act as as one to protect each other. And so Woodrow Wilson, at the end of World War One, kind of the aftermath, starts to look for a very permanent international institution that would help promote peace and security. And so this led to the creation of an institution that was called League of Nations. And this was created in 1919, and it was essentially what you might think of as the precursor to the United Nations, which we're more familiar with today. But the League of Nations was the first effort. Now, this effort failed. Obviously, the League of Nations does not exist anymore today, and it failed for a variety of reasons. Primarily speaking, because the organization really failed to handle aggression on multiple fronts right off the bat. It didn't seem to be accomplishing its mission. You had Japan going into Manchuria. You had Italy into Ethiopia and several others as well. You also had kind of a uh, a domestic issue here in the United States where Congress was actually very upset with Woodrow Wilson. They felt that they were being left out of all of these discussions about creating the League of Nations, and they believed that he had really overstepped his bounds as the executor and uh, commander-in-chief And they thought that they needed to rein in his power because he was making the office of the presidency way too powerful. And so Congress had this kind of beef with Woodrow Wilson. And so when he eventually did turn to them long after the organization was already kind of in process, he turned to them for approval and they basically said no. And so the U.S. actually never joined this institution that the U.S. President Wilson was really heavy in pushing for. He was one of the main precursors or one of the main... um, instigators of this institution, but he couldn't get his country to back him because of this rivalry between himself and Congress, where Congress thought that they were being cut out of the political process and that the office of the presidency was expanding and getting way too powerful. And so the League of Nations failed, and it failed in the in the 30s, and this led into World War II. 
Now, World War II happens, and we decide to try again. And so at this time, the United Nations was formed, and it was formed in 1945. And so the United Nations becomes the successor to the League of Nations, and its purpose was, again, to provide international cooperation, to create and maintain order. But because it was kind of a replacement for this previously ineffective League of Nations, they came in with some different perspectives on how to go about it. In particular, they were really keen on getting the United States involved. You really can't have some of these international institutions and organizations without the major powers involved. And so the, U the U.S. was on board with this particular organization. At its initial founding, there were 51 countries that joined on. Today, there's 193. But where the United Nations really managed to succeed, where the League of Nations had failed, is that they saw their purpose as being a lot broader. Where the League of Nations was mostly focused on this idea of peace and security, the UN saw it as having a, a broader perspective. So in addition to peace and security, and it did create a security council for that, there was an economic council, there was an international court of justice, you had um, or other organizations underneath it like the World Bank, the World Health Organization, UNICEF. And so even though its original mission of world peace was very complicated in those early years with the Cold War going on between two of their major members, the Soviet Union and the United States, the UN managed to really succeed and last where the League of Nations had failed. Now, it's important to understand that the UN falls into this category of something called an international institution which is actually different than international organizations. I know I've kind of used both of those terms here today, but officially an institution is a much more formal body that's created by states, by countries, and for states, and it addresses much more political issues. Organizations are much more informal, and they're treated more like businesses. They don't operate at the interstate level so much as they're focused on like a specific field, like, say, uh, medical care, and they kind of run themselves separate from states. So an institution, it has more to do with countries themselves being members, whereas international organizations do operate kind of at that international level, but they're run separate and distinct from states. So they kind of set their own goals, their own priorities, they pursue their own goals in the ways that they see fit. These, these would be groups like the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders, whereas institutions are more like the EU and, the, and NATO and the UN. So the existence of these international institutions raises two questions. First, why do countries join them in the first place? In particular, when you think of it in terms of war, you know, why do you let yourself be dragged into a foreign war? What's the purpose there? And then the second question is, are these organizations, institutions actually effective? Are they doing the job that they claim to be doing? And I'm going to look at both of those questions separately today. So first, let's look at this question of why do countries join alliances? What's the purpose there? And I think this question and the concern it raises can be best exemplified by the world wars. In these cases, you had relatively small, almost domestic disputes. For instance, World War I with this assassination of an archduke. Uh, world War II was essentially a territorial dispute between Germany and Poland. But because of alliances, these wars really spun out of control very quickly and grew much, much larger. And so why do countries choose to cooperate militarily on these issues when war is incredibly costly, both in human life but also monetarily, and especially when alliances really aren't binding? When you have this idea of international anarchy, there's no governing body that can step in and say, hey, you guys didn't fulfill your end of this bargain, and they can't really punish you for it either. And there's a handful of possible theories that have been posed to explain this kind of conundrum. 
First is that common interests motivate cooperation, right? So maybe one state has a stake in the outcome of another dispute. For instance, World War II, go back to this, Britain and France saw defending Poland as being crucial to their interests in the world. And so it's a, a very self-serving argument that you know, they stepped in to stop Germany because it was in their best interest, not necessarily because it was in Poland's best interest. You also have an argument called balance of power theory. And this is actually one of the largest arguments and largest theories in all of political science. And it's this idea that when there is a situation of two states kind of competing in some sort of rivalry where the military capabilities of two groups of states are roughly equal. No state has a kind of a clear advantage over the other. And this is where you have the world at its most peaceful. And so alliances form because when you have one state that's rising in power, you need multiple states to match and compete with the capabilities of that rising power. Uh, so for instance, you had France and Russia aligning kind of the late 1800s because they saw Germany rising together. Now, this does not account for things like bandwagoning, uh, where states join on with, with the stronger side, not with the weaker side to, pro to provide a balance. It also doesn't explain why some really strong powers don't provoke this kind of balancing effect. The United States right now, is, I think, is a great example. Once the Soviet Union fell, balance of power theory suggested that other states should now ally against the United States to try to balance the United States' power. And it, this also doesn't really account for the so-called implausible alliances. You have cases where, like, say, the Middle East, there's a lot of countries that really should ally with Israel against, say, Iran, because Israel provides them the balance that they need to compete with a very powerful Iran. But you don't see that because there's cultural and religious differences. So this balance of power theory is all about military capability, and that doesn't really explain everything either. As I mentioned, you do have this idea about joining the stronger side in a conflict. If you think one side is going to win, sometimes you see countries ally with them to share in the spoils of war. There are also these ideological and religious compatibilities, Again, like, say, Saudi Arabia joining with Jordan and Iraq instead of the stronger Israel, even though they do share some of the same common enemies, say, like Iran or Egypt in the past. There's also theories about geographical proximity, cultures being similar. But at the end of the day, alliances are mostly built around this idea of security. And this makes a lot of sense when you have, say, the United States allying with a smaller country that could use the United States as protection from, you know, say, Russia right now. So if you have an Eastern European state that's weaker, allying with the United States makes sense because it provides you security. It doesn't quite explain why the United States joins. You know, why does the bigger, more powerful state that doesn't really get any security from the alliance join? You know, we, we don't get any real security from Estonia or Lithuania. They don't help us in terms of protecting ourselves. So what do we get? And in this case, you usually see these strong states get coordination on other issues to kind of offset it. So maybe coordinating policy, uh, getting influence, putting military bases around the world. The United States is famous for this. We have bases all around the world, much more so than any other country. So this is to provide presence and influence. But still, the cost of honoring your commitment in some sort of security alliance is very high. If, say, Estonia was attacked or Macedonia or some other small Eastern European state, say Russia invades, the United States getting involved there could be very, very costly. And so forming a reliable alliance agreement is very difficult. And to put this into more of a, a realistic argument, this has raised some questions as to whether or not organizations like the UN or NATO have the necessary mechanics in place for enforcing these commitments. Because if say a NATO member does get attacked, 
what is to stop the United States from just saying, oh, well, it's too costly for us and we're going to back out of this, even though we promised it ahead of time. And so there's actually some thought that alliances themselves are not as reliable as you think. But there is this theory that alliances are less about handling wartime than they are about deterring war in the first place. The idea that the United States having, say, a military base in some Eastern European country does more to deter Russia from stepping across the border to invade than it would if they actually did. Uh, now, obviously, these countries that sign alliances do hope the United States comes to help in those situations, but deterring war and keeping it from happening in the first place may be equally as important, although a little harder to visualize and to, to recognize than stepping in during the time of war. And of course, with these major institutions like the UN or the EU, for instance, in Europe, they have tried to expand beyond military purposes to encompass all these other areas like economics and politics and human rights issues, preventing loss of life in civil wars and all these other kind of humanitarian issues. And the thought here is that if you can have an institution that provides aid and assistance in a lot of different areas, then that can help offset some of the cost from the strong states that feel like they may be putting a lot more into this and not getting as much out. And this is a big concern for countries like, say, the United States, where you have to wonder, the United States pours so much money into some of these organizations, for instance, like, like NATO, and this has actually been a big criticism of President Trump recently of NATO, but if you can help offset some of that cost that the United States is paying by offering cooperation in other areas like trade, then it makes them much more likely to want to fulfill their commitments when the time comes. And then this leads naturally into the question of, well, are these institutions actually effective? And this is where it gets a little tricky. And this is where you start to see a lot of these detractors. There's a lot of challenges when it comes to collective security. I mentioned a couple of them already, this idea that strong states may not feel like they're getting as much out of this. But when you're looking at this from a perspective of international peace and security being kind of a public good, everybody benefits from it, no matter who you are, there is this temptation to kind of free ride and shift the cost to others. And you see this, again, this is one of the big criticisms with NATO right now, is that a lot of these countries are not putting forth their fair share because they're hoping to benefit from the organization and the peace and security that it provides without having to pay the cost themselves. This is the collective action problem. It comes up in a lot of different fields, not just political science, but it's a, it's a really big challenge in collective securities. How do you get all countries to, to pitch in, even though they will benefit regardless of whether they do or not? And you think about the UN right now, right? So there's 193 countries, but would their impact on the world change if there were 192 or 190 or even 150? And that's where it gets hard to, to say, you know, does the UN depend on these kind of smaller fringe countries to provide the benefit that, that it does to the world? And this is very challenging for them because they have to convince all these countries that they need to put forth their fair share and pay into the organization in order to get something out of it. And you can think of this too, if you join some sort of organization that helps say, let's put this on a domestic level, helps clean, clean up a public park in your area. A handful of people are going to put forward the cost to do so, to pick up the trash, the time it takes to go clean up the park, clean up the graffiti, you know, pick up litter, all this stuff. But everybody in the community benefits from it. So there is this incentive for individuals to look at that and say, why should I contribute? Somebody else is going to do it anyway, and I still get to reap the benefit. And 
The problem comes when everybody starts to feel that way because everybody looks at this and says, someone else is going to do it. And so you get this free rider concept. And this free rider concept comes up a lot when it, when it comes to public goods, things like public parks, clean air, a clean environment. You know, these type of things are, are going to benefit everyone regardless of whether or not they pitch in to help. You also have other criticisms of collective security, this idea of like joint decision-making. This is why so many of these organizations have smaller subcommittees, but the idea is states are not going to look at all situations the same. And we saw this during the Cold War with the United States and the Soviet Union, where the UN was really paralyzed. They were not able to do a whole lot during this immensely stressful and kind of always on the horizon, violent wartime situation because one state or the other, the U.S. or the Soviet Union, would always veto everything, just about. And in particular, too, when you have an organization like this where, say, one country like the United States is pouring a lot more money or time or effort or whatever into it, decisions tend to then be made by the stronger states. Now, this is great because it helps reduce the cost of coming to an argument or coming to agreement through argument, a lot less debating, and it means a faster response. But you have a lot of smaller states who argue that by allowing these large, strong states to make decisions that affect everyone, they're not necessarily making the decisions that are best for the small states. And so this has led to some criticism as well. Now, let's look at the UN specifically and what, what they do, because as I mentioned, they have kind of expanded beyond this idea of peace and security. They do have two kind of peacekeeping, or I should say peace organizations. They have peace-enforcing troops which are about establishing peace. They usually go after the aggressor if they can agree on who that is, and they try to establish peace. Then you have what they're probably more well-known for, which are peacekeeping organizations. And this is where they try to step in to maintain peace after a war, and they do it with the host nation's agreement. And so you have a lot of countries that contribute to the UN in in manpower because they don't necessarily have the the monetary funds to do so. The top you know, peacekeepers are from Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Nepal, Senegal, Ghana. You know, most of those countries I mentioned don't contribute or can't contribute monetarily, so they contribute in manpower and they find other ways to do so. But that's kind of the military side of things. And the military side is, is frequently where you see a lot of the criticism because, as I mentioned, the Cold War period was probably one of the most dangerous conflicts that we've seen. At least uh, it didn't actually spill over into war, but it was kind of constantly on the horizon between the two superpowers in the world. And during the most dangerous times of that, say the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the UN was forced to sit on the sideline. They were completely impotent. They were incapable of doing anything because the US and the Soviet Union vetoed everything. And so you have to look at the UN from like a military perspective and say, are they actually effective if they, if during the most dangerous time periods since, actually the most dangerous time period since it was established in 45, it did absolutely nothing and couldn't do anything. We have seen a handful of successes. The Gulf War, I think, was probably the big, the biggest success. Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and the Security Council very quickly passed like a dozen resolutions to fight off the aggressor in Iraq and included troops from 35 different countries. And so that was probably the biggest success that we've seen. But most of the time, the UN really struggles on the military front. You know, there was a series of crises, Bosnia, Somalia, Rwanda, which was the famous battle between the Hutus and the Tutsis, Darfur. Uh, these were situations where the UN had its limits 
exposed completely bare. I mean, Rwanda actually saw nations withdraw their peacekeeping forces. They kind of went went around or over the head of the UN and pulled their own people because peacekeepers were actually getting killed in Rwanda. And these countries were seeing that the UN was not capable or was not doing their job and so started pulling their own people. Uh, we also have, say, the, the, the huge thing with the United States. Most recently, 9-11 saw a very divided Security Council. We actually didn't receive explicit UN support for our actions after this. We went ahead with it anyway. And this actually raised even more questions because if the UN does not give approval for some sort of country's action and the country goes ahead and does it anyway, what recourse does the UN actually have? And, and they, did, they don't have anything. They were completely unable to do anything with, to, to the United States. And the US actually did receive a lot of individual support from other countries but they received no official support from the UN, who is supposed to be the governing body that, that does this. And so this really, again, exposed a lot of the limitations of the UN because it, it shows that they really only have power that's given to them by states. And if the state chooses to take that power away and do their own thing, the UN doesn't have a whole lot of recourse to punish them for it or to step in and, and stop them. Now, of course, the UN goes beyond this military capability, and this is where I think they've managed to succeed the most when it comes to economic and social issues, uh, health issues, the International Court of Justice. Some of these other institutions, other functions have allowed it to remain an institution you know, long past what a lot of people might have thought it would happen. Uh, when you had, say, the League of Nations, it was strictly war-related issues. And this was part of the big problem that caused it to fail. The United Nations has tried to diversify. And we've seen this approach actually take place in some other areas as well. I think NATO was a great example of this. Its entire purpose was to prevent the spread of the Soviet Union. And so when the Soviet Union fell and the Cold War ended, a lot of people predicted its collapse. But it moved into human rights issues, humanitarian concerns, uh, post-war peacekeeping and stabilization in a lot of areas. And NATO has managed to outlast most of the predictions for it. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the UN and these other collective security organizations, international institutions, you have to look at them and say that they, they're limited. You know, there is only so much they can do. And this raises kind of a question of, is it better to have a poor police force or a poor international governing body than to have none at all? Is it actually worth having these alliances and collective security organizations and institutions if they don't do a very good job in some of these huge crisis scenarios? And there's been a lot of moral concerns raised about this too, about whether or not the international community even has a right to intervene in some of these civil conflicts or two countries fighting each other. Does the international community have a right to step in there? There's the argument that there's a moral imperative to protect victims. Uh, and the instability in one area threatens the security in surrounding nations from you know, overflow or spillover effect. But there's a lot of sovereignty issues here as to whether or not an international body made up of other countries has the right to step in and tell a country how they can control their own territory. Do nations have the right to control their own territory? Do nations have the right to go to war with one another if they choose to? And does the international community have a say in that? Because intervention costs money, it costs resources, it costs lives. And we've seen a ton of these alliances pop up. I mentioned NATO and the UN and the EU, but there's a lot of other ones as well in other areas. You have the G20, which is an international forum for governments and banks from 20 major economies in the world. You have the G8, eight major economies in the world. You have an organization called MICTA, that's M-I-K-T-A, which is a series of five 
kind of middle powers. That's Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, Turkey, and Australia. The initials spell MICTA. You have the Commonwealth of Nations, which is mostly mostly former British territories. You have the BRICS states, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Again, they spell out BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, emerging national economies. And you also have a lot of regional groups, the Organization of American States, the Arab League. Obviously, the EU is a, is a regional organization. And so supporters frequently make this argument that even though these organizations do not always accomplish the goals that they're set out to do, that they were created for, having, as I mentioned before, a poor governing body is better than none at all. And I think this sentiment is best exemplified in a quote by a man named Dag Hammarhild, who was the second secretary general of the United Nations. And he said, the UN wasn't created to take humanity to heaven, but to save it from hell. That's kind of a funny quote, but it does kind of show what at least one of the former secretary generals thought of the United Nations, that it wasn't designed or wasn't purposed to solve all the world's problems, but it was put into place to help stop some of the worst. And I'm going to leave you guys on that thought because we're about out of time. As always, remember to follow me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Hit me up on Facebook with my fiction author name, J. Robert Kinney. And I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics, and I'm signing off. Thanks, guys. Yeah.